Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, page 853 of your pew Bibles. Um, I've, I've done that thing that, that I have a, a habit of doing. Uh, in December, usually around December in the year, I usually plan out a, you know, f- about 50 to 52 weeks worth of sermons. And then uh, a few weeks into it, you realize that was kind of a waste of time. Um, because uh, I really thought we could look at the Lord's Prayer in a single week. Um, but there's a reason why it is probably the most quoted passage of Scripture, more than the verse, um, because there is so much here. So I ask your pardon, it's going to take us at least two weeks. I say at least two weeks because I don't know what, you know, if we can get it all done next week. But nevertheless, uh, Matthew chapter 6, if you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's Word, we're going to look at what I believe is a model prayer. But we'll read the entire Lord's Prayer. may not even need your Bibles in front of you to, to know it. Uh, Matthew the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask as always the same thing every time we gather. And we can only beseech your grace, and we ask that you would do that. We ask for your kingdom and your glory, that uh, you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would receive your word, having believed your word, to be transformed by your word. And in it all, we want to see Jesus glorified, lifted up, ascended in heaven, risen from the dead. But Lord, we need your grace, a grace that is worthy of receiving, a grace that is beyond what we can fathom. Help us to, to, to learn from this prayer, a prayer given to us that we may be better at praying so we can grow in intimacy with our Savior. Make us better at that. And in that prayer, give us powerful prayer so that this city can be reached with Christ. And may I decrease that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Seated. I think many of you all know by now that I have a really just fascination with the differences between men and women. I just love it. I, 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 I could talk all day about it. I could go in great detail with it. I just find the subject so fascinating. For example, um, um, men uh, are, are love things. Women love people. And that's why if you study vocations that are dominated by men and vocations dominated by women, you'll find that similarity. Men uh, um, at a larger percentage geared towards things like mechanics, blue collar stuff, uh, engineering, things like that. But in vocations that, uh, uh, that are more people oriented, like nursing and, and, and school, like te- teaching and stuff like that, you're going to find more women and a higher percentage of women in, in that, that field. Why? Because men love things, women love people. And, uh, uh, and that, I just find that stuff fascinating. I can give you a thousand other ones, but can I give you uh, another one that's subtle? And it's so subtle and so small, it, it, it makes me just marvel at how, how is it that this is a difference? Men don't believe in reading the instructions. Women do. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you, you, you just wait until your wife come. Have you looked at the instructions? What are those? And, you know, so, so we, we, 
every, every couple here who, who have had this conversation, uh, your, your wife goes and buys something at Ikea and didn't warn you about it before. Hey, I need you to put this together. Okay, I'm gonna put this together. You just rip that box open. Everything falls out. You look at the picture on the box and you think for some reason, I could do that. That's easy. I don't, I don't need someone to tell me how to do it. I'm a man. And the first things after the first year of marriage, your wife will start saying is, here's the instructions. And, and, and it's annoying. It really is annoying. And then when you see a man looking at, looking at the, the, the gizmo he's trying to put together, he's really thinking about it. He's focused on it. And, and, and his wife knows she's on the other end of the house. She knows he's stuck. And she'll come right in and say, well, did you look at the instructions? You already know the answer to that question. I don't even know where the instructions are. I don't need the instructions because when it all comes down to it, duct tape will hold this thing together at least until we need another one. Why is that? Why, why, why are men like that? I, I don't know, and I'm guilty of it. I have no skill in putting things together. If, if, if we are down to me putting something together or fixing something together, it, it, it's, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. Uh, you would go to my wife before you would probably go to me. You don't want that. But even then, I don't bother with instructions. It is odd, isn't it, that, that we can have someone or something to say, this is how you best put it together. And then we say, you know what? I know better than that. We all do it when it comes to our spiritual life. God has given us instructions in his word and his revelation of how it is to live our life for his kingdom and glory. And yet we ignore it. Even more so, I think we do it with prayer. Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus dropped down and said, hey, can I just give you a, a blueprint, if, if you will? This, this, this is what prayer, uh, just an idea of what prayer would look like. Uh, or, or imagine if he gave us a recipe, if you will, and, and in it he gives you the, the, the components of it, the ingredients of it. He, he, he lays it all out for us and he gives us the instruction. All we got to do is follow those instructions. Wouldn't you like to pray like that? The good news is we have precisely that here in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Now, now we need to lay a little bit of foundation here. When it comes to the Lord's Prayer, for one, we should know that this is not Jesus' actual prayer. We may call it the Lord's Prayer, not, not my favorite title for it, but we may call it the Lord's Prayer. But this isn't Jesus praying this. We know this because you'll see later down. He asked God to forgive him of his sins. Jesus didn't have sins to be forgiven of. So this is not Jesus praying this on a daily basis. Likewise, we need to be clear that, that I think we're missing the point of this passage when we turn it into a type of ritual. Maybe you're in the sports and, and, and before every game, the team huddles together and they recite the Lord's Prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think we're missing the point of the Lord's Prayer. It isn't a magical formula that we can recite in order to get something from God. In fact, we saw last week, Jesus condemned that approach to prayer. You can go back to verse seven. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, because they think they will be heard as a result. If the Lord's Prayer is just words on a page, something you say, and you think it has magical powers, you've missed the point of the text. We can all recite the Lord's Prayer because we've grown in Southern culture where we all recite the Lord's Prayer. If, if no one wants to pray in a group, we all pray the Lord's Prayer. If no one knows what to pray, we'll just pray the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with that unless we allow it to become a ritual. 
what is then the Lord's Prayer? Well, I prefer to, to call it, and I'm getting this from MacArthur, I, I like to call it the model prayer. It is a, it is a blueprint. It's a recipe. It's, it's, it's instructions. It's given to us so that we may look at it, understand what are the components of prayer, what, is the, what should prayer look like, and then put it into practice. But I want you to notice here, what is the focus of this prayer? This is why it's really helpful. If, if we were to take our last 10 prayers and, and to evaluate them and then come here, I suspect for many of us, if not most of us, we will notice a stark difference. You'll notice here there is no room for me or I. In fact, notice how it begins. Our Father. Our daily bread. Our debts. There is no, dear God, give me this. Dear God, cause that to happen for me. Dear God, fix this for me. There's not a lot of room for that in the prayer. It is very God-focused and other-serving. It is a Christian prayer, in other words. And that the focus of it is God who rules and reigns over the universe with the goal of, by entering his throne, I'm, be, I'm growing in intimacy with him. And so that when I, when I grow in intimacy with him, I can see things through his lens. And when I see things through his lens, I start looking at the needs of others. That's really what it is that we ought to see here. If our prayers are dominated by the self, we're really missing the point of the prayer. And this is the sort of prayer we would expect to find among those who are, as Jesus put at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the poor in spirit, the meek, and the pure in heart. Its desire is the glory and honor of God and the good of others. Well, what I want us to do then, just, just to simplify it, I want to look at four components of prayer. If this were a recipe, these would be the four ingredients. If this were instructions in that Ikea box, which you ignored, this would be the part where it has all the pieces, right? If, if you don't have all these pieces, you're missing a piece. And then that gives you an excuse to go back over to Home Depot or something like that. But, but so what are the four components of prayer? We'll look at two this morning. The first is adoration. Adoration. Notice the language here in verses 9 and 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The greatest flaw of our approach in prayer is, I believe, our approach to prayer. Our greatest flaw when it comes to prayer is how we approach it. We often do, if we're honest with ourselves, treat prayer as if it is a cosmic ATM machine whereby we make a request to God, and we wait his reply. You know, we put in the buttons, and we think that if we say it right, if we follow all the, the, the ritual and the ingredients, we'll, we'll, we'll get what it is that we, we, we want. But notice that in that context, prayer becomes a means to an end. Our, we, what we want is our wants, not his glory. Now, can you imagine if... You had a relationship like that, a friend, a family member, a coworker, to where every time you're in conversation with this person, it's all about what you can do for them. How far will that relationship go? Eventually, you just lose patience. You're eventually going to say over lunch or whatever at work, you're going to say, you know what, can we just one time not talk about your mother-in-law? Can we just one time, right? Just, just a 30-minute dinner over some salad or whatever, talk about anything other than your problems. And you're eventually going to come to that point. 
And yet, if our relationship with God is a relationship with God, then, then it needs to be more than simply coming and saying, I want or I need. And, and this is really what uh, Jesus has been warning against since verse 1 of the Sermon on the Mount. The proper motivation for charity, for example, that we saw uh, two weeks ago, ought to be God's glory. The proper motivation for piety uh, that we'll see uh, in chapter six, or we've seen in chapter six, ought to be God's glory. So too, a proper motivation for prayer ought to be God's glory. We can either approach prayer as a means to get from God, or we can approach prayer as a means to get God. That is a massive, massive difference. Um, Jesus rightly demonstrates that the focus of our prayers ought to be his essence, it ought to be his person, and it ought to be the work of our creator and redeemer. Notice, first of all, Jesus highlights God's position. God's position. Our Father in heaven. Now, we take this language for granted, don't we? Um, because we've grown up, uh, particularly in the church, where we speak of God and describe God as our Father. That's not bizarre to us. But if you were in Jesus' day and time when he offers this model prayer to his disciples, it would have been a bit odd. In the Old Testament, the fatherhood of God, though is present, it is not a central theme. It's there. Uh, sometimes it's subtly there. For example, in Exodus 3, the burning bush. You may recall that uh, Moses is, is asking God all these questions, and, and God says that I'm sending you to Egypt so you can deliver my son from the hand of Pharaoh. Now, if Israel is God's son, then God is Israel's father. It's not developed very much in that passage, but it's clearly hinted at uh, for there. However, which you'll find for the most part, though not exclusively, for the most part, the idea of God as father is a type of analogy for us to understand Israel's relationship to God. So you won't find many, you'll find some, where father is made a direct address. Let me give you just one example. I took others out uh, in, in the book of Psalms. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Notice that here, the fatherhood of God, it's present, is more of an analogy. What the writer wants us to think, he's probably thinking, well, well, when I think of how I, as a father, show compassion to my children, that helps me understand how God shows compassion to his children. And if God, if we are the children of God, then he must be our Father. But here in the New Testament, Jesus changes all, all of that. Not only does he refer to God as his Father, which was scandalous at this time, he encourages all of his disciples to refer to God as his Father. And Father helps us to, to understand who he is. There are two big words I want you, I want you to, to put in your vocabulary when you're thinking of God, because it's going to help you uh, in, in really to contemplate in your adoration of God. The first word is transcendence. Here what we're saying is that God is transcendent. We get it here in this passage. Our Father, where is he at? Where is he at? In heaven. He's the big man upstairs. He is our Father who rules and reigns in the cosmos. When we speak of God's transcendence, we are talking about how God is above and beyond our own comprehension. He is outside of our full experience, 
perception, or grasp. He is powerful. He is holy. He is mighty. He is great. He is up there. We are down here. Here, we were putting our relationship to him in the, in the right perspective and his relationship to us in the right perspective. He is God. He's not my buddy. He's not my co-pilot. He's not my tag team partner. He, he is divine. He is God. He's above everything I could ever imagine. The very thought of entering to his presence is, is, is beyond my imagination. I do not deserve it. I am not entitled to it. If God were to decide to wipe me off the face of the earth, send me to eternal judgment, he would be just in all of that because he is transcendent and I am mere fallen creature. The Bible over and over again wants us to stand in awe of a mighty God who is sovereign over the nations, sovereign over the cosmos, providential over all, and he is perfectly holy without blemish. If you pause for a minute and, and, and contemplate the transcendence of God, you will rightly find yourself under your bed in the fetal position, sucking your thumb in lowliness because he is great, he is mighty, and I art. The transcendence of God. Actually, I think the word father is helpful here. I'm willing to bet you grew up in a house, and maybe you are in that house right now, to where uh, you've been a bit of a rascal, and mama can't handle you. It's just one of those days where mama's done. And what does mama say whenever she gets done, particularly if she has boys? Wait until who shows up? Your dad. Yeah, that's my man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> he knows. So, so wait until your father shows up, right? And, and, and you immediately get the image in your head. He's going to come in like, like, like some Western cowboy, right? All right, who's getting it first? Dad would line us up. Mom would call him. And, 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 and so our rule was, you know, sis would babysit us because we were poor and couldn't afford a babysitter. And, and we would be rowdy. And so sis would call mom. Mom would get angry. would make her call dad, which means that when mom got home first, we got her whoopings. And then she warned us, you ain't seen nothing yet. Your daddy ain't home yet. He would come home. He would then whoop us. And then we were good for at least a good hour, right? It's, 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 you wait until your father comes home, has a sense of fear in it. We used to put on extra underwear just, 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 just to soften the blow. Right? You, you feared that. So too, God is transcendent. He is holy and righteous and pure and sovereign and mighty. But though that is true, we read the Bible, God is equally imminent. The imminence of God here speaks that though God is above us, God is mysteriously still with us. He is imminent with us. This describes God's knowability, his intimacy, and his care. This is the beauty of, of, of Scripture, isn't it? Many religions want a God that's up there, but he's distant. And we feel like we have a distant father. But then Scripture comes and says, yes, he is there. He is powerful. He is above all. He is king. He's the Lord of the cosmos. But the beauty of the gospel is that God has come to be with us. God speaks to us. God listens to us. He stoops down with us. This is God's eminence. Now, we err theologically when we favor one over another. And, 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 and you read theology, even beyond other religions, you'll find that is typical. We Christians do this. We American Christians, we want to emphasize God's eminence often at the cost of his transcendence. Fundamentalists often want to emphasize his transcendence often at the cost of his eminence. You can't do that. The Bible don't play that game. It wants you to see that God is holy and righteous and transcendent. He's equally imminent. I think a father is a good picture of that. 
The same man who your mother may warn you is going to come and give you a good whooping is the same man who will stoop down and play. He'll engage with his children. He'll, make them, he'll give them a good belly laugh when he comes home. He, he, will, he will play Legos and blocks with them. He, 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 will, he will teach their children how to wrestle. And kids love to wrestle. He will do that. The same man who ought to be feared is the same man who is equally compassionate and caring. That's what a father ought to be. And God is such a father. So we worship and pray to a God who is both transcendent and eminent. And that is where this prayer begins. Notice that Jesus wants us to orientate our prayers first and foremost to the God of whom we are praying to. We are seeking his attention. We are asking for his presence. We are approaching him. When our prayers are all about me, my, and the self, what we're, what we're trying to do is pull God down. But you need to know, you can't pull God down. At the, at the same time, God is already here. Rather, let us lift him up. Let us bring glory to his name. Let us acknowledge what we know is already true. We are not entitled to such a privilege as to come before the Lord's throne. Rather, we should stand in awe of the privilege we've been given. So we see God's position here. Secondly, we see God's essence presented here. Hallowed be your name. Now, hallow is a word we don't use unless you're reciting the model prayer. You ain't used it this week unless you use the model prayers, to be honest. One of those Bible words, you have no idea what it means. The word basically means to sanctify or to make something holy. Let me give you a few examples of this word used in the New Testament so you can sort of grasp what it is Jesus is saying here. In John 17, Jesus says, sanctify the disciples in truth. Your word is truth. Notice it's that word hallowed right there. Hallow them in truth. Doesn't make good English, but you get the point. Or consider Paul, the church of God that is in Corinth, those rascals, to those made holy, those hallowed, those sanctified in Christ. It's good news, isn't it, that probably the worst church in the New Testament, Paul still declares to be the holy ones. That's encouraging. Uh, and finally, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. Remember, he gives a whole list of, 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 of sins that he says, this was your story, but you've been washed You've been hallowed. You've been made holy. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. The bizarre part of this petition, if you'll notice this, is it doesn't fit, does it? How do you sanctify something that has already been sanctified? Let, let me think of a different illustration here. Uh, I'm willing to bet there you have a mother, a grandmother, an aunt, whatever, whose house is immaculate. And they complain every day when you come over it is filthy mess, right? You have one of these people. Look, I've, I've been in pastoral ministry now for 20 years. And, and every time, or not every time, uh, if, 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 if it is, um, there are many houses I go visit and they say, oh, brother Kyle, I'm so sorry. The house is a mess. I just haven't been feeling good. You walk in thinking, what mess are you talking about? There's an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond where, where the wife uh, gets one of those little vacuum things that's got the water. And it, you can see in it how much dirt it was, right? And, and the mother-in-law is always talking about how messy the, the wife's house is. So she takes this vacuum over, goes over to mother's hall, mother-in-law's house. She starts vacuuming to prove a point. Her house is dirty too, only to discover it ain't picking up no dirt, right? How then do you clean an impeccable house? How then do you sanctify the one who is himself 
holy. You see the problem with the prayer? Our Father who is in heaven, I, I could get, I get my head around that. Sanctify your name. It's already sanctified. It's already been holified, if you will. It's already hallowed. How do you hallow that which has already been hallowed? I mean, right now, the seraphim are crying in the throne room of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The point isn't that we make something that isn't there, that God is somehow impure and needs to be made pure, but rather we recognize in the one we're speaking to what is already true. We must come to him as the hallowed one. This is the language of reference. And as I approach the holy, revered, hallowed God, I stand in awe and I want to leave more like him. Reverence. Let's look thirdly at God's mission, his position, his essence, his mission. Your kingdom come, verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not, again, a request that God would become sovereign, but that we would recognize his sovereignty. We would live under the beauty of his sovereignty. We are not praying that God would become holy, but rather we would recognize he already is holy. This is a prayer that God's kingdom would continue to expand by the triumph of the gospel. We've looked at the language of kingdom before, so I don't want to take the time here to do that. But, but the, mission, the, the fundamental mission of Jesus was to bring about the kingdom of God. The, the king who rules and reigns over the cosmos would rule and reign among, among his creation. And he particularly does that through the people of God. Let your kingdom come. Let it expand. Let it be triumphant. Let it grow. And let your will be done on earth among your disciples as it is among those in heaven. The angels and the cherubim and the seraphim and every, on all the other divine creatures. You notice what, what he's doing here is, is he's saying that if you are the hallowed father who has a will and a way and you have words of which I am accountable to, then let it be when I approach you in this intimate moment of reverence, let it be that I see your kingdom and I pursue it. I see your will and I obey it. I hear your words and I go do it. Let it be your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, our priority should not be what we are building for ourselves, but what God is building for himself. And we want to be part of that journey. Well, we mentioned adoration. Let us briefly look at the second, and that is thanksgiving. So if you're looking for the ingredients of a good prayer, components for a biblical prayer that would please the Lord, you, uh, adoration is a major one. And out of adoration should come thanksgiving. I mean, how can you not? If, if God is so unapproachable, he welcomes us, our attitude should be that of thanksgiving. Many people come to the model prayer and, they, and they, they, they say that Jesus has all these components, but he doesn't tell us to be thankful for him. Well, yeah, but isn't thanksgiving a form of worship? How many of our hymns, how many of our worship songs talk about uh, give thanks to the Lord? Read the Psalms. Many of them are give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Why? Because he's worthy of it. Usually we approach Thanksgiving after we get something from him. 
But if we approach adoration correctly, we will naturally become thankful people. Related to adoration is thanksgiving. And Scripture clearly wants us to express gratitude in our prayers. Let me give you just one example, uh, or maybe I have more than one. I don't know. We'll just figure it out. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 18. You know verse 17 well. Pray without ceasing, whatever that means, right? But notice here he says, you, you keep praying. Keep praying. Pray without ceasing. Live a life of prayer. Notice this. Give thanks in all circumstances. Well, so it, it, are these two different commands? Pray and give thanks? Or is it in your prayer, give thanks? I would say yes. Live a life of consistent prayer. Live a life of consistent thanksgiving. That'll make you an oddball in this country. But in your prayer, practice your thanksgiving. Because you have much to be thankful for. You are standing in the presence of God. You understand before Jesus, if you wanted to approach God, there was a lot of steps involved. You had to go through the priest. You had to go through the temple. You had to go to the tabernacle or synagogue. Sacrifices had to be made. He had to go and, and, and intercede on your behalf. But we go directly to our maker. How can he not be thankful for that? How can he not have an attitude of thanksgiving? Adoration fuels gratitude. When our prayers are only supplication that we'll see next week, they become inwardly focused. Re-examine your prayers. Are they only me, me, me? And if so, practice these two. Adoration on the one hand, thanksgiving on the other. Self-orientated prayers will fuel entitlement and insecurity. If you're only going to God saying, I want, I want, I want, you are stirring in your heart misery because when you feel like I don't get, I don't get, I don't get, that is going to feed on all the insecurities of your heart. But if you approach your life and your prayer with gratitude and adoration, you will understand all that I have is thanks to God's blessings. I deserve none of it, have been given all of it. Glory be his name. Don't simply seek things from God. Seek God. Well, I read this week, of a little four-year-old girl who was trying to learn the Lord's Prayer. And she was doing pretty good, but she, she, she struggled with it a little bit. And so she, she, she was learning it by listening to her Sunday school teacher at church recite it. And on one day, uh, they, were, they were praying the Lord's Prayer. And the Sunday school teacher heard this little girl above everyone else. And she said, Our Father who art in heaven, I know you uh, I know you know my name. Actually, I think she's on to something. I know you know my name. The question is, do we know his? Do we know him? The secret to a good prayer life is not the goodies you can get from God is that you can acknowledge and grow in intimacy with who he already is. That will bless you immensely. So I don't know your needs, I don't know your wants, I don't know your demands, but I do know that when your greatest need in life is to grow in intimacy with the Father. It will begin when you call out to him in prayer. Maybe you're here and you've never done that before. I beg of you to come and to respond by accepting Christ as your Savior and God as your Father. Maybe you're here and your spiritual life is, is not where you ought to be, where it could be, or where it should be. Let, please hear me. It will begin with a right view of God that you are pursuing daily. Begin with adoration, move the thanksgiving, and watch what happens in your life.
The Lord will bless you because you will be in his presence. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you be so kind as to help us that we may grow as your disciples, that we may, we may seek your faith, face through prayer. But I understand we all have burdens and needs and challenges and we need to intercede for each other and, 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 and we need to carry our, our burdens to you. This is all commanded in the Lord and in Scripture. But what we really need is you. What our church needs is you. What our families need is you. What our community needs is you. And Lord, I ask that you would honor these prayers. We come to you broken and bruised and weak, often not knowing what to pray. Lord, hear our hearts here this morning. What we seek above all else is you. Would you come? Would you use us? Would you bless us? Would you move in a mighty way? Lord, let us swim in the beauty of both your transcendence and your eminence. That the one who is above all is with us all. May we marvel at that. And may we adore the God of grace, whom we have wounded and wronged, so loved us enough to send his son. Let us receive that truth and let us be thankful for the God of that truth. Move us in this time of invitation, we pray. Amen.